Hello, everyone. This is Jim Gassel, Canadian patent agent and co-founder of Trifio. You are listening to the IP Fridays podcast. And this is Grant Peters, partner at Barnes & Thornburg in Chicago, and looking forward to working with Jim on our virtual patent marking podcast on IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Co-host Ken Suzanne and I are welcoming you to episode 135 of IP Fridays. Today's interview guests are Jim Gassel and Grant Peters, and we talk about virtual patent marking. Before we jump into this interview, I have news for you. The USPTO and the US Department of Commerce have launched the initiative Women's Entrepreneurship, WE, a community-focused, collaborative, and creative initiative to inspire women and tap their potential to meaningfully increase equity, job creation, and economic prosperity. I have also found an interesting tool, the KOF Patent Explorer, developed by ETH Zurich, that visualizes where the actual inventors are living of patents and also visualizes which inventors from which countries are collaborating with inventors in other countries. A link to this tool will be in the show notes. About a year ago, a decision of the European Boards of Appeal have stirred up the European patent community, finding that an amendment of the description after grant is not necessary. And after that, um, some decisions have been pro and contra um, amending the decision after grant and uh, in 22nd of October another decision came up uh, of this year came up that uh, decided that an amendment of the, dis of the description is not necessary after grant so the boards of appeal at the European Patent Office don't seem to be able to make up their mind whether an amendment of the description is necessary. Let's see what maybe the enlarged board of appeal will decide and if a case is referred to the enlarged board of appeal. After the judges of the Unified Patent Court, the UPC, have been named, a heated debate started in the patent community over potential conflicts between the role of judges and the client relationships which stem from the private practice um, of many of the new patent judges. Um, and in fact, 43 of the 51 technically qualified UPC judges come from law firms or in-house companies. Just a few days ago, the president of the European Patent Office has decided that video conference becomes the new normal at the European Patent Office, at least in oral proceedings, in oppositions and in the granting procedure. Also, there is a notice of the European Patent Office of mid-November saying that 
um, the grant of a European patent can be delayed after the start, until after the start of the UPC system, so that the patent is actually the granted patent is actually published after the start of the UPC system. So now let's jump into the interview about virtual patent marking. A presentation is linked in the description below. Our guests today on the IP Fridays podcast are Jim Gassel and Grant Peters. Jim is a registered Canadian and U.S. patent agent and works at the Canadian firm of Gassel & Associates. He discovered patents during a seminar in a fourth-year mechanical engineering design course in the 80s. He tells me he was an avid inventor at the time, and the early discussion of patents was like a bolt of lightning. He was hooked. He immediately went out about learning how to prepare a patent application for his project of interest at the time, and hand-delivered it to the Canadian Patent Office. Soon after, Jim started his training in the patent profession. Meanwhile, he developed a line of animal transport systems for veterinary clinics and convinced a major U.S. veterinary medical catalog to feature his products. A strong response from the catalog led to a stream of product leaving Canada for international markets, leading to what Jim describes in today's tech language as product market fit. However, Jim wasn't finished with patents, and for the ensuing 30-plus years, he has represented corporate, academic, and independent clients in a wide range of scientific fields, having managed portfolios for a number of multinational clients along the way. Jim continues to represent select clients in patent preparation and prosecution and has worked closely with U.S. counsel to explore lesser-known aspects in U.S. prosecution, which might be beneficial to his clients in expanding or optimizing patent scope and value in growing patent families. Jim tells me that in many ways, virtual patent marking is an example of those lesser known aspects. Several years ago, Jim became interested in the opportunities and benefits of legal tech and has founded a company which offers a suite of collaborative online tools to address some of the pain points he sees in the field of IP for IP professionals and their clients alike. One of those tools, called Marker, is currently in beta. Marker helps patent owners launch and manage a VPM program. Also joining us today is Grant Peters. Grant is a returning guest to the IP Fridays podcast. Grant is a partner in Barnes & Thornburg's intellectual property department. He has been with B&T Chicago office since 2000. Grant helps clients to design, develop, obtain, sustain, and enforce IP strategies to manage and curate their IP portfolios. He's known for his 360-degree view of IP matters, as well as creativity and candor, while working with clients. Welcome, Jim and Grant, to the IP Fridays podcast. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's great to be here, Ken. Yes. yes. Thanks, Ken. It's always good to be back. Yes, and Grant, you've been a guest on one of our prior podcasts. That was episode 131, uh, dealing with the metaverse. Um, while the metaverse has virtual aspects, virtual patent marking is not necessarily part of the metaverse, right? Right. Thanks. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, we we talk about virtual patent marking, uh, and and it's def definitely different than the metaverse as we discussed last time. Um, I won't get into the details of the metaverse here because the virtual and virtual patent marking comes from the fact that it's put online. So instead of the old physical marking that we used to do, patent number by patent number on products, 
is virtual with a link and we'll get into all the details and specifics of mm -hmm. that. So tell me a little bit about the uh, virtual patent marking. What is it exactly and uh, why should listeners be um, interested in it? Sure. Um, and Jim, you feel free to jump in if you have any thoughts on this too. Uh, I'm just going to sure. start off though, because sure. um, based on the U.S. laws where, where a lot of this is coming from, um, and to set the tone, really the U.S. and the U.K. are the only countries right now that recognize a form of virtual patent marking. As Jim will tell you later on, Canada is getting into that category, but they're not there yet. Um, very quick, brief history. There was uh, what we call a whistleblower statute, a key TAM statute that the U.S. government had that caused a lot of problems um, a little over a decade ago for a lot of patent owners. It was basically strict liability. If you had an old patent number on it, you violate uh, on your product, you violated the statute. Um, there are a lot of opportunistic parties out there that kind of fit that patent troll feel to a lot of our clients. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, they were just following the statute and the case law, and it created a lot of havoc in the patent area. Um, fast forwarding from that, um, the statutes Congress did the right thing, and they modified their amended the statutes so that they got rid of the most harsh aspects of those statutes and give us the statute that we the statutes that we have today um and very quickly the statutes for anybody who's keeping notes or want, wanting to look this stuff up as they go through uh it's 35 usc section 287 and 35 usc section 292 287 deals with the the, the guidelines for what we do to mark uh, and 292 deals with the false marking aspects of that. But um, like I said, the, the false marking aspects have really changed quite a bit. Um, it, it eliminated basically the strict liability. The amendments eliminated the strict liability. Uh, and now it requires an intent to deceive the public uh, as a result uh, or in order to enforce those statutes. So I think that's that's a significant change that made it a lot better for, for parties. Um, and just superficial top line information on what virtual patent marking is. It basically associates uh, a, a product with a patent number by use of a link that is provided online. Uh, and a, a good example of the link would be www.companyname.com forward slash patents. Use that link to get to a list of the, the products and patents, and then you're off to the races with virtual patent marking. But we're having a podcast which tells us that there's a lot of little nuances in there, uh, and we'll be talking about some of those nuances as we go through this podcast. Mm -hmm. And Jim, what led you to become interested in virtual patent marking? Well, that's a good question. I've been in the business for quite a while now, and virtual patent marking uh, has, has sort of featured fairly late in my practice. Um, we usually provide guidance to our clients about patent marking at the point that a patent is granted. Um, and we don't usually hear back from a, from a client on that. We very rarely would get involved in post-grant activities like uh, reissue and, uh, and re-exam and, and the rest of the activity around the patent is left to maintenance fees. So marking is really left there. Um, Grant and I have collaborated extensively over the years on both U.S. and Canadian prosecution for our respective clients, and I can pinpoint my interest in VPM 
Last fall, uh, Grant and I were working uh, uh, on a project for one of my clients, and he uh, mentioned that he and his uh, partners were having a, a webinar on VPM. And I thought I should I should check that out, and I and I was really intrigued by it. I was intrigued and surprised to be intrigued by this apparent hidden value sitting in the data of, of, of constructive notice, especially when it's an early constructive notice. Um, and, I, and I suspect that that isn't fully appreciated by our colleagues. It certainly was not for me up to that point. Mm -hmm. And we have a link to that webinar that you mentioned in the show notes if listeners are interested in, in learning more about that webinar. Um, so why should patent owners care about and consider using uh, virtual patent marketing? Um, well, that, that's a great question too, because as Jim suggested, it's kind of a hidden, uh, I, I think there's, there's a fair amount of literature out there, but I think the literature doesn't get into the nuances of some of the hidden, potential hidden value uh, of virtual patent marking. And this deals with issues of timing and as Jim introduced the terms constructive notice uh, or, or actual notice. And let's roll back a little bit on that so our listeners understand what that is. Actual notice is when you take your patent number and apply it directly to the, excuse me, actual notice is when you send a, a cease and desist letter to a party and provide them with specific identification of a patent and the alleged infringing product. Uh, when they get that letter, that starts the clock on the actual notice. Um, and, and that's important because that can have a dramatic effect on damages. If you are starting the clock from the date of that letter, well, you're going to accrue some damages. If you could reach back further on damages, that would increase the potential value of that uh, infringement uh, in terms of litigation, as well as in particular, the, the benefits of using that as leverage uh, to try to negotiate a settlement. Um, when we talk about litigation, we often think of, of just the court proceedings in those aspects, but uh, you know, pre-litigation, before we actually go to court, uh, those things can have an effect on um, uh, the, the leverage. Uh, constructive notice, though, is where we get into the virtual patent marking, and that's reaching back, as I suggested, um, by having marking on a product, um, you get the benefits of the earliest date you provided that marking on the product. Um, you get the, the benefits, as I say, of constructive notice. Um, with regard to virtual patent marking, that notice can occur as soon as you apply the virtual patent marking to the, the product. Um, as I sent, said, you know, the virtual patent marking is a consolidated form, if you will, um, listing a, a link only and not all the various patent numbers, perhaps. Uh, and as a result, I think that can provide a lot of benefit to a party. Um, with regard to the cease and desist letter I alluded to, um, you know, when, when our clients see a potential infringer, they look at their patent portfolio, see if they've got patent coverage on it. They contact us. We do our research and analysis and then, you know, have an opinion that might result in a cease and desist letter. Um, again, if we have virtual patent marking, we can identify in that cease and desist letter that we've been marking the product and that creates another scenario for the infringer that they have to think about. So I, I think those are important aspects of, of it. And uh, uh, the value associated with that, as I suggested in litigation is important, but another value that I, I don't think often our clients 
consider as, as intently is the value to the portfolio overall, such as when we get into mergers and acquisitions, if somebody's uh, a party is acquiring or buying a portfolio as, you know, as part of the company and the assets, uh, it's important uh, to have the maximum value of that. Uh, if you haven't been marking, you may lose six years of, of value in reaching back to uh, claim damages against an infringer and that's value that you're not going to get in that acquisition. So uh, this is something that's important we need to consider as another aspect of value. That's a, that's a very good point, uh, Grant. So you're saying that if patent owners properly use a virtual patent marking, uh, they can use it to try to maximize the potential damages. In top-level general terms, um, what does such a virtual patent marking program look like? Right. Um, well, we, when we started the podcast, we mentioned the link, uh, www.companyname.com forward slash patents. Uh, then that link takes you to a list of the products and the patent numbers associated with those products. So you have analogous to marking on the product, the link takes you to this list. Um, mm -hmm. And then again, making sure the link is on the product. The other aspects of that, that the general literature doesn't get into is some of the routines for maintaining that list. Um, you know, if, if you're not following a routine or good discipline and good uh, corporate hygiene on that, that list might be out of date and we need to make sure that our, our clients are looking at that. Um, now, keep in mind what this looks like to each uh, owner may be a little bit different, right? For some entities, having a, a spreadsheet with a couple of products and a couple of patents might be sufficient uh, with the link uh, identified, the indicia, if you will, identified on the product. Uh, other parties, um, you know, university tech transfer groups, larger corporations or uh, entities who want to be more proactive on managing their IP assets uh, might need a more um, proactive uh, format. Uh, and there are some products out there uh, online uh, and they should look into those tools and see if, if they can find the right tool to uh, to uh, meet their needs. But that's a general overall look at it. Let me also just do a quick compare and contrast to the former way of marking. As I said, we see our clients, they might have a product with a data plate on it. On that data plate, you'll see things like the certifications for electrical and standards and things like that. Uh, and then the question is how they can fit on the numerous patent numbers that might relate to that product. Well, we can give them back that real estate and, and fit you know, information on there by just having a relatively short link that will then take the, the, the party who's curious about the patents, providing proper constructive notice to the website where it's found. But the good thing about virtual patent marking is once they file their patent application, they can, they, they, even a provisional application, they can put the virtual patent marking link on the product. Then as that pro uh, that patent process uh, takes place, uh, there's patent application pending. The link says patent pending, okay, associated with that product. Uh, if they wanna be very proactive, they could put in the publication number once the patent publishes, uh, but they're only updating the link. They're not updating the marking on the product. And that's in contrast to the old days, pre, virtual patent marking, where you'd have to update that information specifically each time. That could involve changing stamping, changing tooling, changing packaging, things like that. So this and, is a much and that's better- that's costly, problem. right, Grant? I mean, the, the costs add up to make those changes and updates. 
Right. Uh, you know, we were talking about the value proposition early on about litigation or value of the portfolio, but each one of those steps is another issue with, with regard to the value proposition, uh, time, effort, and, and money involved. Mm-hmm. Um, to both of you, what trends are you seeing uh, in the virtual patent marking field as we speak today? Well, Ken, the literature that we found so far is uh, much to my surprise when I saw the literature. Uh, it's a relatively low take up. Um, a couple of papers report random, random samplings of patent assignees at the US Patent Office, and they were finding only about 10 to 15% of patent owners provide VPM notices on their websites. Now, of course, that's going to depend. There will be you know, there may be a trend that uh, the patent owners that have large patent portfolios might be more likely to have a VPM notice. It might be that younger startup uh, companies may have a tendency to have more activity in virtual in, in virtual patent marking notices. The other thing that's that we see is an inconsistency across uh, the uh, the notices from one to the, to the next. And, and that's very interesting. The, the papers do suggest that it would be great to have some kind of standard. Mm-hmm. And Grant, any comment on that, on trends? Yeah, I, I agree with Jim on those trends. Um, I'm not gonna get bogged down on specifics of each of the cases that are that we've seen. There hasn't been a lot of case law in this area, first of all. Uh, and I think that probably mirrors the relatively low compliance uh, of, of many patent owners um, with virtual patent marking. Jim, I think that study you were talking about was that economic study where it was what, around 12%? Yeah, that's something right. like that. That's yeah. right. But and, it had a lot of, Sorry, Grant. Go ahead, you first. I was gonna say, sorry, uh, uh, we, we uh, uh, the statistics, as I mentioned earlier, the statistics really on, on, on the company size and the number of portfolios. That kind of yeah. And so with low statistics like that, I think that reflects low cases, a low number of cases that might come up. Um, but with that said, uh, I, I think there's an interesting possible trend that we could be seeing develop here. I mentioned the UK is involved. Uh, Canada is going to be going in this direction. Uh, eventually, we'll be seeing some activity in Europe along this line. And the author of that economic study that we were just talking about um, uh, also has written a paper making a call for a, 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 net, a international standard for patent marking so that, you know, an entity in, in our global economy, but an entity in, in, you know, any number of countries will then have a predictable standard for its patent marking. And I think the public wins in that regard, too, because we're all familiar with the same type of notice uh, when that occurs. And I think that's an important trend. Um, I would say, you know, I, there will be a, an increase, I think, of parties using it, uh, just as they're finding more and more value, as we've discussed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as if they follow the guidelines, in the general guidelines proposed or suggested by their council, uh, staying up to date, I think they'll have few issue, issues and the trend will be very positive. And we'll all benefit from more uh, and expansive uh, sharing of information. Um, Grant, let's let's look at some of the online tools. Uh, how can online tools help with a virtual patent marking program? Sure. Um, there's a number of tools out there. Um, 
as you mentioned early on in the intro, uh, Jim is involved with a, a tool called Marker. Uh, there's other tools out there. I don't have all those at my fingertips, but um, uh, patent owners can go out and try to find those and use those. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I think I think the online tools will be really helpful for the uh, adoption of virtual patent marking. It's going to eliminate some of the mystery uh, of virtual patent marking. It's going to create efficiencies in doing that. It's going to allow somebody to have a, a, an employee who will then be responsible for patent marking, uh, help keep things up to date more frequently. But as I said early on, this is not a one-size-fits-all situation. So anybody who has a, a patent with a portfolio or patents uh, should check with their, their patent professionals or counsel and decide what they need for their particular um uh, applications, but a good online tool, and I, I do like the online tools because it allows parties to work efficiently and, and keep up to date. Um, you know, in our distributed uh, working environments that we have now post COVID, right? Uh, you know, we need need to have those tools avail- available to anybody in any location within our organizations. Uh, but it should, you know, a good tool should guide the users through the steps that are required so that we can then, you know, prevent errors from creeping in. Um, cross-checking information that'll help out. Um, uh, Each of the elements on a virtual patent marking page should be populated in the online tool, again, to help manage it. Uh, And an important thing uh, of the online tool, uh, I think would be very useful, would be an audit feature. Because when we talk about um, providing notice, one of the things that will inevitably come up is the infringer will say, well, you didn't provide sufficient notice. So therefore, you know, damage only accrue from the actual notice. There was no constructive notice. But if the patent owner can provide an audit feature uh, for their portfolio, uh, I think that'll go a long way to convincing infringers that there's more risk uh, than, than they have, uh, than they might expect. So I think that's an important feature of that tool as well. We're have a few minutes left um, on this topic, um, but I'm, I want to go back to the issue of challenges. Uh, first question over to Jim is, uh, is there an overarching challenge, do you think, Jim, that is holding back, you know, universal adoption? Yeah, thanks, Ken. I, I suspect so. I think it's uh, it's sort of wrapped up in the confusion um, around what the notice needs to be, uh, coupled with this um, um, not being sure uh, how to associate um, a product uh, with, uh, with the patent. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, we understand that, that claims define the scope of an invention and, 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 and the patent owner understands that it's those quirky claims that we work so hard to allow for them that actually define that scope. And, and I think the patent owner um, uh, will be reluctant uh, without some guidance on actually committing that association, that link between the products of strategic value that are covered by that particular patent. Mm-hmm. Grant, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think I think there's a couple of things here too, um, mentioning the quirky claims. I think that goes to the area of the biggest lift for our clients uh, and parties who are patent owners. Um, They don't on a daily basis necessarily look at their patents and try to apply them to their products and try to figure out what claims cover. Because one of the things we have to be cognizant of is that when we list a patent associated with the product, 
it has to cover that product. We can't be loosey-goosey about that. We have to be thoughtful about that. So that becomes a little bit of a lift, um, uh, maybe not the thing they're best at. So we need to help our, our clients with that or the clients need to reach out to their, their patent counsel on those things. Um, I think there's also a little bit of a folklore about the risk of false marking. And I think that's less of an issue than parties would be concerned about. Uh, again, the changes in the patent uh, in the patent laws on false marking require this intent element, which wasn't there before. So that makes a big difference. Um, and you know, with regard to the risk associated with false marking, there has to be some injury by, say, a competitor as a result of your marking. So if you're being diligent and honestly marking and keeping things up to date, there shouldn't be any any harm to your competitors. Uh, and if you're doing it in a thoughtful manner, there shouldn't be any proof of any intent. So I think there's relatively low risk, and that should be less of an issue for parties. Mm-hmm. Now, we're recording this podcast interview in fall of 2022. Let's look forward to 2023 and beyond. What future trends do you see for the adoption of uh, virtual patent marketing? I'm fascinated by it, actually. I think that um, as time goes on, I think if if uh, practitioners like me uh, start looking at this more closely, I, I, I see the endpoint, uh, so to speak, not being the granting of a patent, but actually the posting of the VPN page. And by that, I mean, uh, the you know, we, we, we prepare patent applications and we crystallize that subject matter. Meanwhile, the product developers are trying to get this product for market fit. Uh, as they get the product market fit and they get to grant, if we in fact are aware of their efforts and we know together that we're going to be posting a VPN page, then they naturally will become more involved because they'll have more stake in understanding what those claims are actually covering. So that if in fact we, if we, if we look at the VPN page as the final point and not the grant, then the VPN function of associating that particular product with the patent will be far more routine. And for that, I think we'll have greater um, take-ups. Very interesting. Grant, your thoughts? I I agree. Um, And part of the reason I agree so much with Jim is we've talked about this topic a lot, so we have some common thoughts in this area. Um, You know, the funny thing for me is when when we were doing the webinar last fall, uh, I talked to any number of parties who said, no, we don't do that. And I think that part of it was the heavy lift of doing the association of, of patents with the products. Uh, and there's a fair amount of work in that. Um, I, 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 I think looking forward, we're going to see more adoption because parties will be able to use some online tools. Parties, you know, those creators have put together tools that make sense that have a good user interface that will make it easier uh, and more flexible because with our current uh, labor environment, people coming and going, you want to have that tool, then help the employee who's going to manage that. Uh, You know, it's not typically going to be somebody who's dedicated to just that feature. So um, that'll be helpful, uh, you know, uh, in in the near future. Um, You know, this has been around for a decade. So I think we're just starting to hit a stride now where parties are getting uh, familiar with the benefits and and, uh, the value associated with it. So I think we're going to see that happening. And especially, um, in mergers and acquisitions, uh, as as those uh, activities change from time to time, uh, I think you're going to see this type of question uh, as a prominent question uh, on the due diligence check sheet. Uh, 
checklist, right? We're all very good at, in the IP area at finding the patents and trademarks and copyrights and domain names and things like that and listing them. But where is the value there, right? Uh, you know, we can look at whether the parties have litigated any of those things, but sometimes that doesn't, we don't know the value of a patent until it gets litigated or enforced and that could be years off. So um, I yeah. think we're going to see a trend in that area. We're going to see more focus on on that, the importance of that in M&A. This is, this is definitely an area that's developing and we'll continue to look yeah. at this on the IP Fridays podcast. Jim, we're going to close with you. You're a patent agent based in Canada. What's the perspective of patent marking there? Oh, it's, it's very interesting. Um, I, yeah, I'm not in the US, I'm in Canada and I could probably talk to any number of colleagues of mine, not just in Canada, but in other countries. Um, you know, most of us look to the US market. Um, whether or not Canada has a marking program, and we really don't have a defined marking problem. We have program, I should say. We have we have a marking requirement in industrial designs, but not in not in patents. But the Canadian market's pretty small compared to the US. So most of us uh, in Canada and elsewhere should be really interested in in, uh, in VPM for the reason that it gives us value in uh, as regards a, a U.S. patent. Um, so I guess I guess. Uh, oh, I should also mention uh, quite interestingly, as we were building our our online tool, the Canadian government has just issued uh, issued it in June of uh, 2022, a guidance on U.S. Uh, virtual patent marking programs. So um, my sense is it's, it's, it's going to become uh, a more familiar up here. Excellent. Jim, Grant, thanks so much for joining us today on the IP Fridays podcast. This has been fascinating, and we'll be sure to monitor this uh, development as it continues to develop throughout the country. It's been a great pleasure, Ken. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you for having us, Ken. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast, or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.